The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. <laughs> it is wonderful to see you all again. Thank you. Allow this to soak in. Words are overrated, even though I'm about to share a whole bunch of them with you. So uh, a couple weeks ago on my sabbatical, I had the opportunity, my wife and I did, to get away for the weekend to see some friends. One of my oldest college friends, she and her husband live just outside Washington, D.C., and we caught up with each other and she shared uh, this summer, right around the summer solstice, we're going to the Shetland Islands. And I said, oh, that sounds great. Where are the Shetland Islands? <laughs> I had a vague idea they were somewhere north of the equator, and they are. They are very far north of the equator. So that's Iceland you see up there. It's the United Kingdom, Ireland, Shetland Islands, all the way there on top of Scotland. So I mentioned they're going to be there right around the summer solstice. Now, last summer, some of you might recall, I was in Ireland, which is southern of there. And the sun, right around July 4th when we were there, just a couple weeks after the summer solstice, would not set until about 10.30, 10.45 at night. This is in Ireland, two weeks after the solstice, south of the Shetland Islands. We're all getting this kind of time and geography thing, right? Okay. And it would come up about 4 o'clock in the morning. That gives you a lot of daylight to work with. So my friends will have even more daylight to work with when they're in the Shetland Islands around the summer solstice. Now, my old college friend, she is like me, not the best sleeper in the world. And so as much as she's looking forward to the trip, she knows that there are going to be some challenges. And so we started to talk out some of the reasonable plans for making sure sleep stayed intact during the time we were on the vacation. She said, you know, the place they're staying, there's like totally blackout curtains. And she had backup plans as well, too. She was bringing an eye mask and a second eye mask. <laughs> And melatonin, that over-the-counter sleep hormone that I have to tell you, nothing has more changed my relationship with sleep than melatonin has. It works for me. It doesn't work for everyone else. And then because we've known each other for a very long time, we moved from the reasonable plans to make sure she would get enough sleep while over there to the unreasonable plans. Do you think you can rent a cave? <laughs> a cave that goes like 100 or so feet down into the earth, so it's really dark down there. Um, is there like a vampire travel package you can get with maybe some kind of crypt or mausoleum or, or even perhaps just kind of a snug coffin that you could make sure that you're there that totally shuts out the light a la the way a vampire needs to stay alive and not get burned by the sun? We went on with this for quite a while. It's good to see old friends who accept your ridiculousness. Now, one of the reasons they're going to the Shetlands is because there is all that daylight to work with. And, of course, too much of a good thing stops being a good thing after a while. Our conversation reminded me of this chart I saw on social media not too long ago. Validation and hope on one side, toxic positivity on the other. I love that. We might hear about toxic negativity, which is like, duh, that's the easy one. <laughs> but toxic positivity is a thing, too. Just to give you an example, obviously, this is hard. Validation, hope. this is hard. You've done hard things before and I believe in you. You'll get over it. Further on down the list, sometimes giving up is okay. What is your ideal outcome? Never give up. 
I got to tell you, actually, I think toxic positivity is more toxic than toxic negativity because it comes in a shiny package in which we're just supposed to be upbeat all the time. It can become toxic. It's too much. It's out of balance. It can estrange us from one another and estrange us even more from our own hearts when we judge ourselves harshly for having feelings, thoughts, and experiences inside ourselves that we think ought not be there. Many of us from that place then go to war against ourselves with all kinds of negative consequences for ourselves and for each other. And so, starting today, next month here at Wellsprings, Reverend Lee and I will be doing, I think, our longest surviving message series here at Wellspring, Songs of the Spirit. I think it's going on like 10 years or so. We've done it every year, at least once, or maybe every other year. And I'm starting out today with what I would call one of the core gospel songs of Wellsprings. The Indigo Girls, who when I think of the late 80s, this image comes to mind perhaps more than any other on a jewel case, if on an actual CD you could hold in your hand. I'm that old. I'm CD holding in your hand old. <laughs> You've all done that on, well, maybe you haven't, but I'm filling the, anyway, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> Closer to fun. I can't tell you the number of people over the years who've come to Wellsprings first, second, third time, and newcomers to the congregation, and I hear back at the end of the service, I really liked it. And, oh, my God, you did Closer to Fine. <laughs> you did this Indigo Girl song that's like one of these things I hold closest to my heart. I hold it close, too. I think it's such a powerful story because it points at one of the things that makes Unitarian Universalism a truly healthy and indeed at times even saving spirituality for people. Because this song encourages us. To relinquish what no longer serves. To move against the larger movement of many of our lives, which is about acquisition and acquiring. And more in the direction of releasing and letting go and letting be. The less I seek my source for some definitive, the closer I am to find. That line is gospel. At least it is to me. Notice they don't say, I, I, I'm stopping seeking. I want to stop knowing myself. It's the less I seek my source for some definitive, some place, some thing. goes through all the things, the academy, the bar. I've tried both. Neither of them definitively have helped me. Especially one a lot less than the other. <laughs> the less I seek my source for some definitive. Something definite, the closer I am to find. Giving up the claim to have to find the one thing that's going to be it actually is the thing that can save us. I think there's something about that quest for the definitive that has a lot to do and is bound up with the desire for something that is so pure and spotless and clean and flawless. I think it actually ends up being the language of a kind of emotional totalitarianism, which is really close cousin to political totalitarianism. 
the idea if we can only get to that place of purity definitively, we will be okay. So I'm going to get throughout this message today a little bit of Master of Social Work geeky. I'm just going to thank you all because this is helping to reinforce my learning as the degree has now come to a close and I'll graduate next Saturday. And one of the things I love is that uh, um, an approach to therapy that has really found a purchase on my heart is called acceptance and commitment therapy. It is very simply combining mindfulness-based skills with action in the direction of our heart's most deep values and orientation. That's the acceptance and that's the commitment. And one of the things I love about ACT, as it is called, is that it can be deeply kind and compassionate and also completely no BS about the things that get in the way of our happiness. That desire to get to the definitive, to the place where we no longer struggle, to the place where we have moved beyond any of our quote-unquote problematic symptoms, the place we've just have, have assured ourselves total happiness and complete comfort. You know what ACT calls that? Dead person's goals. <laughs> Because dead people have stopped having problems. (laughs) To be alive is to have a certain amount of discomfort. That's just baked into the cake of who we are. The less I seek my source for some definitive, the closer I am to find. I think this is what Jesus was kind of pointing at when, when he said that bracing teaching. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And if sin doesn't work for you, just substitute in imperfection or, you know, purity or any other thing that, you know, we're supposed to have maybe or our culture has taught us and we don't have. You see, if we might drop that stone, first of all, we wouldn't hurt anyone else. And we might also stop hurting ourselves. One of the most... Illustrative things I've heard over the years are people who grew up in fundamentalist traditions. Who grew up in traditions in which there was an obsessive level of focus on purity. And that scars and and wounds. Especially, as fundamentalist traditions do, scarring and wounding women. Sometimes literally. Literally. I mean, Jesus lived in a society way back then, 2,000 years ago, and this still goes on in parts of our world where stoning is the crime for people who are considered to be impure. This is not our tradition, and it's best, although we have our own purity tests, and they're not much better. Some of you might know the name, especially maybe in the last day, of Rachel Held Evans. This was her is her. Rachel was someone who grew up in one of those fundamentalist traditions. And through searching and seeking and open-heartedness, she found her way to a different, more kind, more compassionate, and yes, more embracing of doubt experience of her faith. Some of you know that Rachel died yesterday. At the age of just 37. Leaving behind millions of followers who loved her. Who looked to her for wisdom and guidance in a world that so often is based in rigidity and judgment. And false claims of purity. 
And she leaves behind two children, three and one, and a husband. This life is unfair. This life has its pain. This life has things all the time happen that we wish did not happen. One of Rachel's most bracing teachings, cutting right to the heart of all systems of fundamentalism or emotional totalitarianism, is that she grew up in and healthily moved away from what she called a shame-based purity. That definitive claim that, until she got away from it, divided, divided her within herself, against herself, and away from other people as well. She will be missed. Deeply. And she leaves a legacy that will live on for so much longer beyond her individual life. Being human is so uncomfortable. Isn't it? When we're honest. It's also lovely and powerful and beautiful and amazing. And oh my God, the pain at the same time. When we're honest, we know this. So if you all allow me to continue with my Master of Social Work geekiness for a moment, that act, that acceptance and commitment therapy that I just mentioned, it is part of a tradition. And one of the steps that I would say came before that tradition is something called cognitive behavioral therapy. You've heard me talk about it before. You've actually probably heard me complain about it if you've been here before. It's not that CBT, as it is called, isn't valuable. It has some tremendous insights, particularly around what are called cognitive distortions. The song we heard points at it. Black or white thinking, purity-based thinking, if you will, is a form of a cognitive distortion. Jumping to conclusions, cognitive distortion. Mind reading. Kevin, I know just what you're thinking right now. <laughs> Cognitive distortion. Here's the thing, though. CBT is very often dedicated, and it uses this language of moving to extinguish our problematic symptoms. That, to me, actually becomes problematic, because here's the issue. To be alive is to have cognitive distortions. <laughs> I don't want to pathologize those. I got to tell you, I'm coming back from three months paid off here. And the way my mind works as I walk in here today, I'm just being upfront about this. I've had like 15 or 20 cognitive distortions about what you're thinking about me so far today. <laughs> the problem is not having cognitive distortions. Not at all. To be human is to have these. And extinguishing or eliminating them, I actually think too often is an invitation to go to war against ourselves and actually to engage in a kind of psycho-spiritual quest for purity that is illusory. To be human is to have these cognitive distortions. But to be a wise human is to know that they're there, to not believe them, to not act on them, and instead... This is the commitment part to engage with curiosity, and compassion, and connectedness 
when we find ourselves unsure. Psychological theories don't happen in a vacuum. And truth be told, the reason I have so much of a quarrel with cognitive behavioral therapy, I know this is probably too much geekiness for some of you, so just indulge me if you would, is that it's so much the standard of treatment in our country. And it reflects some really negative parts of how we as Americans tend to think about happiness. That happiness is the moment when we get rid of all the discomfort of being human. (laughs) Those tiny little islands that we exist on for a moment, and then we get really pissed off when someone else tramples on our island with their problems, or we have a difficult feeling inside ourselves. And I'm like, damn it, I missed it. I want to get back to my island problem is with island living, it's a great way to starve and be isolated. And the truth is as well, too, and this is my disclosure in a way that I can disclose to you who I'm preaching with, my congregation, in a way that I couldn't disclose as directly or don't disclose as directly when I'm working with clients. CBT does not work for me. (laughs) I've tried it numerous times. For a moment, I will push back against the cognitive distortions that comprise so much of my experience. It'll work for a moment, but there are little bedevilments. They'll come racing right back. It's kind of like, uh, imagine a balloon, and you get that balloon, and you're holding it underwater. First minute or so, I can continue to hold this. But then the balloon, after a while, it starts to get a little shaky and it starts to push back. You know, what we resist tends to persist within our own hearts, within our own experience. And eventually I get tired and I get cranky and it takes so much energy to hold this balloon underwater that it's all I'm focusing on. And I'm not focusing all the other things that are going on around me that might not be my cognitive distortions. And it exhausts me. So often in this culture, we are taught to go to war against our own difficult feelings rather than simply just not believing them and acting beyond simply the things we don't like about ourselves or our experience. To me, this is the real beating heart of this tradition, of this Unitarian Universalist liberal religious tradition and spirituality. And so what Walt Whitman said, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I contain, and so many of you know the word, multitudes. Our tradition promises freedom of belief. That's great, but that's just the starting point. If we can contain the multitudes of our experience, we may find ourselves doing exactly what the song talks about. Making our experience less definitive. Becoming more flexible and open and free. With a spacious heart that can be in touch with so much of our lives. A lot more room. And by the way, Whitman, who you know, gave us mission here at Wellsprings Community, Chargeful at the Charge of the Soul, I may have shared this with you in the past. He actually was not a Unitarian Universalist. We claim that he was, but he actually find our, he found us back then far too stuffy, far too pure of a focus on the intellect. He is known for sniffing his own armpits and saying the scent of these is greater than any flower. He was pretty earthy. <laughs> he was not into purity. <laughs> I'm not saying you have to go to those lengths, but the truth is, 
right? Purity is not going to help us out. The paradox of moving beyond these definitives, the paradox is that when we do not feel okay, the thing that can make us feel okay is knowing it's okay to not feel okay. Okay? (laughs) Okay. Amen. There is this myth that we can get rid of the difficult part of our experiences. We don't have to act upon them. That's the world-changing, revolutionary thing. I know Marie Kondo is all the rage right now, but the same problems that solve the things maybe in our atmosphere, the environment around us at times, are really good recipes for going to war against our own hearts. And in that, we end up extinguishing so often ourselves. So much of what this song is about and where the singers arrive at the end is just this profound place of self-compassion and kindness in which they're not going to the old things anymore. They're not going to the bar at 3 a.m. any longer to look to get rid of the difficult feelings. Going to those habitual places that do not fix us, do not solve us, and end up just creating more suffering for us and the people we love. I want to close today with a story about grief. Because for me, grief is the archetypal human experience of what it is to create space in our hearts or not. It's from a therapist named Candace Osfort Russell. And this is a long-form essay. I don't even want to call it a blog post. A long-form essay on Medium, the blogging platform. It's really powerful. It is in many ways a distillation of so much of what I have learned these last three years and so much of what I believed for years in my life. And it's got a bracing title, which at first might sound a little weird for me to share it with you. The title, Candace's thing, is called Resilience, a Grief Myth That Can Harm Us. We've been around at Wellsprings for a while. Didn't we like do a whole series on bouncing back on resilience? So just hang on with me here a little bit. She's not anti-resilience. She has a quarrel, a compassionate one, with this person. No, she is. Sheryl Sandberg, COO of Facebook, currently, when I checked it this morning, worth personally $1.75 billion. She's one of the poorer people at Facebook. (laughs) Encourager in some really powerful and positive ways of women's empowerment, especially in corporate work settings, talking about leaning in, and also someone who had something devastating happen to her. In her 40s, on vacation with her family, her husband on the treadmill dropped dead of a stroke like that and was gone. Awful. Heartbreaking. And Sheryl Sandberg wrote a book about it called Option B. Facing adversity, building resilience, and finding joy. None of that is anything bad. But when you scratch the surface a little bit, there's some troubling stuff. See, she says, because option A isn't here anymore, which is what she would have wanted, right? Option A, her husband's still alive. She says that she is going to learn to kick the shit out of option B. Notice the language here. Resilience she defines as strength and speed of our response to adversity. Such an American thing. Strength and speed. Strength and speed. The book has numerous tips to, quote-unquote, overcome 
your grief. And this is where what Candace has to say, I think, is a really valuable corrective. That's Candace, if you put up her picture. She says, grief so often, heartbreak is not linear. It's messy and impure. And it's not one thing at a time. And it's not always onward and upward, out of the pit and into the light. See, what Candace knows is not just reading Sheryl Sandberg's book. She knows it from her own experience. She became widowed. Her husband died when she had an 11-month-old child when she was in her 30s. And she said she lived in a culture that told me to hurry up and return to normal. And she said, fortunately, I had people around me and a really gifted therapist who gave me time and space to feel exactly what I needed to feel. She said, rather than focusing on overcoming her grief, the words she learned were fortitude and patience and transformation and integration. And these things take time. I mean, folks, we live in a country in which the Family and Medical Leave Act guarantees none of us to take time off for bereavement. You know, maybe if you work for a company that guarantees that's great. What it means, however, is probably the people most vulnerable in society are the people least likely to actually get time off when their hearts break because of grief. And the thing about Candace is she doesn't, she's not angry with Sheryl Sandberg, but she knows that these lessons that Sheryl Sandberg is perpetuating are harmful for so many people. And she says to Sheryl Sandberg, your children are and will be okay even if you are sad a lot, <laughs> even if you can't finish mourning quickly, if you slow down and let happiness find its way to you and your family slowly over time. You don't have to work so hard at striving to be joyful. And she tells a story. I offer you this picture, she says. My son is now 26 years old. Remember, he was in his 11th month when her first husband died. He was home to visit for a couple of months ago, and while going through stuff in his room, he found a photo album of pictures from the 11-year period when I was raising him alone. We laughed together about those intense times when it was just the two of us, and then hugging each other as tightly as possible, we burst into tears. I said through my tears, it's so weird, that time when it was just the two of us was the most painful time of my life, yet it was a tender bubble full of sweetness and shared reaching for life together that I will always treasure because I shared it with you. It's such a strange mix of feelings. It's stretching my heart wide open. He nodded, and we continued sobbing together until we were spent. This man who is my son has such a strong heart. He can bear the depths of pain and heights of ecstasy. And nothing is cut off. Nothing is cut off. Let me just interject here. The less I seek my source for some definitive, the closer I am to find. He carries scars, she continues, and I hate that that's true. Yet his scars make him wise and beautiful 
and appreciative of the moments of life like no other 26-year-old I know. And she concludes, Even if there are days when you can't find joy, even if there are times when you can't bounce back, your children can be like this too, Miss Sandberg. I promise. I think it's a lesson for all of us, grief experiencers or not right now. We can be closer to fine and roll with the punches and ride the waves that life is inevitably going to throw at us. The less we seek our source for something definitive, something pure and unadulterated, and through this letting go, through this, perhaps even better, as Paul and John offered us earlier today, through this letting be. More free, more flexible, or perhaps just simply more fine, or closer to it. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? Spirit of lightness and of darkness, spirit of pain and of love, spirit of sunny days and spirit of rainy days. We know that this life, the spirit is always with us and we don't have to define ourselves by how we divide ourselves. That if we would allow ourselves with great tenderness and courage to get closer to those parts of ourselves that feel unresolved, we may find a deeper magic and a deeper wisdom of the help we have seeked with the things that bedevil us and hold us back from the lives that we want to lead so deeply if we would stop dividing ourselves from ourselves. May this invitation to wholeness, which truly is holiness, knowing that it is resting within us today, may this invitation we accept. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellspringsuu.org.